Let's pray again together. Father, my prayer is quite simple. Lord, I know from your word that you love to teach your children. And so, Lord, I pray that um, you would help me to uh, express your longing for your children to know and being reinforced in the things that they already know. And Lord, I pray for teachable hearts for all of us this morning. Because we know it pleases you, Lord, when we walk humbly, when we receive the word with meekness. And so, Lord, would you grant that grace for us as we sit under your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with a story uh, by uh, J. Uh, Adams. He was kind of a pioneer in the biblical counseling movement, the modern mission, uh, the modern uh, biblical counseling movement. And uh, he shares a story of a time a couple came in to see him uh, for counseling. And they're coming in uh, convinced that this marriage is over because they're on the brink of divorce. And really, they're not really there to work on their marriage as much as get the nod from a biblical counselor to say, surely this marriage has no more hope. And so they took the time to detail from their own perspectives why this marriage is not going to work. And you could sum it up to, I don't feel any love for him. I don't feel any love for her anymore. And uh, they didn't agree on a lot, but they did agree on that. And so after uh, the counselor patiently listened to them, uh, make their case for why they should get divorced, he quietly looked at them and said, hmm, it sounds to me like you need to learn how to love. And they're like appalled at that. Like, what do you mean? Learn? I, we just got done telling you we don't feel any love for each other. That's the problem. And he said, I'm not sure you're hearing me. I said, you need to learn to love. Because love, he said to them, is a determination. It's something that you determine to do for the good of another because God told you to. <laughs> like That's what love is. Love is something you determine to do for the good of another because God told you to do it. And it took a while in that session for them to start getting their minds and hearts around the fact that love isn't first a feeling but it's a, determined, it's a determined effort under God to do what he calls us to do. Feelings do follow, and feelings are important, but they're not everything when it comes to love, a truth that we definitely need to hear again and again in our day. Love takes many concrete forms, and it's going to be a dominant theme in the message today. So it makes sense to me at the outset here to uh, not just speak about love in generalities, but to to give it its biblical teeth so it kind of sinks in uh, to our hearts a little bit more that, that love is not just a feeling, it's a determination to do good to one another uh, because God told us to. And love takes a lot of concrete forms. Even take, for example, the one another's of scripture. I just reviewed them again and there are many, but here's just a brief sampling. Okay, love is the predominant one. Love one another, that one shows up many times. But you also have Bear burdens with one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, live in harmony with one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's, 
That's going to come up in a few weeks, by the way. Looking forward to preaching that. That'll change the dynamics of our church. (laughs) Serve one another. Bear with one another, especially in our weaknesses. Or one that's going to show up multiple times in in the coming chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Encourage one another. Uh, But love, you could say, is the predominant one, and love is uh, what's giving expression. It's being expressed in all these other different forms. And um, I think it's safe to say, when Jay Adams, the counselor, looked at that couple and said, uh, you need to learn to love, that we're going to see here in this text that love is a lifelong learning process, right? We continue to learn to love in marriage, we continue to learn to love in parenting. We continue to learn to love in relationships with our fellow believers. We continue to learn to love in our friendships with our coworkers, uh, to show love to unbelievers in our lives. Love is an ongoing process of learning. You could say it's our continuing education that we are enrolled in. And uh, it's meant to be that way through our entire Lives. And so we're going to be exhorted in this passage to keep growing in two main areas. I'll give you the second one later. You got to wait for it. But the first one is this you are to keep growing in brotherly love. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Ben, thanks for getting us going on verse 9. That was great. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Do you see the continuing education piece there? To do this more and more. Grow in it. Learn it. So keep growing in brotherly love. That's what verses 9 and 10 are about. And uh, that word brotherly love, Have you ever heard, you know what Philadelphia is known for, known as? The city of brotherly love, right? Because it puts these two Greek words together, uh, the love for, a word for love and a word for brotherly, and they put them together, brotherly love. And, And that's what is being called for here. And interestingly, it's a term that's usually used, like even in the culture of Paul's day, as a term that would be usually kept to describe the familial bonds within like a biological family. And we know those can be really strong. But in the New Testament, they're used almost solely as descriptions for the love for one another within the family of God, within the church. And that's how Paul is describing it here, which is really beautiful. And so then Paul says this, you know, Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now, I'm going to develop the idea a little bit later of, okay, so if he's saying you have no need for anyone to write to you, and then he's going ahead and writing about it. Uh, I'm going to draw that out in in a little bit. But why does Paul say you don't need anyone to write to you? You see the reason that he gives in the text? Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for or because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. This phrase is so beautiful. Taught by God, or you could say God taught. You are God taught. That's why you don't need anyone to write to you. And with that phrase, Paul is drawing attention to a massive whole Bible reality. He's talking about the new covenant 
the reality of the new covenant, that they are God taught. So he's capturing in that little, little phrase, taught by God, an entire constellation of ideas in the Old Testament. Tons of Old Testament meaning here that are being drawn to the surface. And I think it would be helpful to just think about that together a little bit. Um, Because I actually think this is a huge way that Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians and a huge way that God wants to encourage each of us this morning. So let's explore that idea of being God-taught and develop it a little bit from Scripture. Now, there's a lot of Scriptures I could go to, so I have to try to summarize big swaths of it and then bring us to a few places where we can get our footing. But, um, for example, when we talk about being God-taught, you can look at a cluster of teaching in the prophets that describe people, you could say peoples, nations, flocking to God's holy mountain in Jerusalem to be taught by God. And this is fulfilled in part with Jesus and his earthly ministry and people flocking from all over. And it's kind of interesting, Karn and I were reflecting on that even this morning, that picture Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew takes pains to describe how far people are coming, just streaming from all over to come. Now, that's predominantly Jewish, but the reality is, is that people from all nations are going to be streaming to, to Christ, to be taught. And the way that the, or the prophets talk about it is not that just that they stream to Jerusalem to be taught by God, but once they are taught in the way that's being described here, it leads to life change, an experience of peace that their hearts long for that's all of a sudden being realized. And it's something that has eternal effects. It's something that starts when they're taught and then continues to well up and spill over into an eternity of peace and security and joy. So this is something that flesh and blood cannot teach. This is not something that ultimately a human can communicate to the soul of man. This is something that God does directly to the heart. Paul's saying, you are God taught. I want to draw out a couple specific passages that I want you to see, and so we're going to take the time to go there. So if you want to hold your finger in 1 Thessalonians 4 and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, familiar to many, I'm sure, but it'll be a good review. Jeremiah 31, I'm going to be reading verses 31 through 34, and then just giving a brief summary of it before taking another stop. Okay, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them up by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. You're supposed to connect that with the taught by God will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least 
of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So in this new covenant that God promises, and Paul's going to speak of not just including Jew, but also Gentile, um, in this new covenant, the members in each member of the new covenant will know God personally. Um, Each person will be forgiven. Each person will have the law written on their hearts. And the implication of this that I think is very safe to draw is that when someone is taught by God in this way, they're going to have a new natural way of relating to God and obeying God. In other words, there's going to be an instinct there that wasn't there before. An instinct to relate to God new way of relating to God, and a new power to obey God. And that also comes with cleansing from sin. But each one, everyone will know God because God's word is within them. That's why I'm talking that instincts. Okay, then go to um, Ezekiel. Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And we're going to go to Ezekiel 36. I would love to spend more time in building up uh, in this chapter, but one of the things that's really beautiful here is that, you know, Israel had drugged the name of God through the mud, and God is going to vindicate the greatness of his name, and the way he's going to do it is not just by wiping them out, but by transforming them. And that's what's powerful of how he works in our lives as well. So we're looking at Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24. I will take you, from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle you with clean water, it's cleansing, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Sounds a lot like forgiveness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Go on to verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so a heart is cleansed and a heart is made new. The spirit is given and it's described, and you've heard this analogy here before, of a type of spiritual open heart surgery, right? This cold, dead, stony, lifeless heart that doesn't love God, right? is taken out, it's removed, And then a heart of flesh is put in, a a tender, a soft, a responsive heart to God is provided. And the implication here too is that there's new instincts to obey God. I will cause you to walk in my statute. There's something about what God's going to do internally that is going to have all kinds of external implications. In other words, they're going to be taught by God such their instincts are to be actually obedient to him which was not true before as they were part of the old covenant. And so could spend so much more time with this, but Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, this is what happened to you. God has taught you in this way. And so even back in chapter one, when Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians in verse five, he says, uh, brothers loved by God, 
We know, brothers, loved by God, that he chose you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. In other words, God has taught you. He has done something internally through the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit has now taken up residence in your life and it has changed your instincts. So when Paul says, you have no need for anyone to write to you, when it comes to loving one another, it's saying, you've been taught this way. The law is written on your heart. You've internalized this because I've made it not only myself more personal, but my word more personal to you such that you can actually have an instinct to obey it. And when it says the law, like in Jeremiah 31, the law is written on your hearts. What is the law if you boil it down? Love God, love your neighbor. And Paul's saying, you're doing that because you're taught by God. God's given you, you could say, a heart to do that. This is a beautiful thing that Paul is saying to them. God has changed you in this way. You don't need the letter in one sense because you are God taught. And it's not just the Apostle Paul that spoke this way. Listen to the, God, uh, the Apostle John in 1 John 2, verse 27, speaking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is this chief gift of the new covenant. But this is, this is what John says, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. That's his way of speaking about the Holy Spirit. And you have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything. So he's saying, God's spirit is in you, teaching you about everything. So you don't even need to, in one sense, be taught. But then John does the same thing that Paul's doing here. Then he goes on to teach them and reinforce. Um, but I, do you get the sense of what Paul is saying here? Okay, You've been taught by God. This is a profound reality that he's saying has taken place and is continuing to bear fruit in your lives. Have you... Um, Maybe you've had this spirit. Can you remember this experience? Can you remember your favorite teacher? Your favorite teacher, whether it's uh, high school or even back in elementary school. And what did you what did you love about them? Like I can remember Mr. Schroeder from third grade. Yep, he was the one that stood out out of all the teachers. And there was kind of two things that stand out. And as I was reflecting on this, I think this is true about most people that we would say that was my favorite teacher. They were very personable, like you could connect with them, right? And they were very good at teaching you, like you actually could learn something from them, right? Like, and that combination seems really rare. There might be the teacher that wants to be chumming with the students, but they just still stink at teaching, right? But to have both of them together where they actually know how to connect relationally and they know how to make things stick in your heart, in your mind right? That's what we love about a teacher. And I think it's beautiful to step back here and go, the reason why we love that ultimately about teachers is because it's a reflection of who God is as the teacher. God loves to teach people. And he loves to relate to people. That's why he made us, to relate to him. And he is able to make things stick, the most important things stick on our souls like no one else is able to. He is our ultimate teacher. So it's an awesome thing to be God-taught, to have God personally teach our hearts. And this comes through the gospel. Ultimately, when the gospel is shared with us and the spirit that inhabits us, we are changed and we respond differently to God from that point forward. And so as believers, I think one of the big takeaways here is 
we are meant to revel in this reality. It's amazing. It's a miracle to be God taught. To go from not having an inclination to know and follow God to now having an inclination and that being a new instinct to relate with God sweetly and to be able to follow God's, uh, God's word, not as some big burden in your life, but as a joy to honor your heavenly father. This is evidence of being taught by God. And this is sheer grace that God does this, that he works in our hearts in this way. And this accounts, his grace accounts for our new inclinations. And so we want to glorify the teacher. We want to praise him today for what he has done in teaching us and giving us these new instincts. So let's pick up in our text, verse, reading through verse 9 again, and then picking up in verse 10 where Paul gives them uh, another affirmation. So now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And uh, so Paul loves to affirm the people of God. He's told them that they're God-taught, encouraging them with that. And then he's here saying that you're already doing this. You're already loving. And he said earlier in chapter 3, verse 12, you're doing a really good job of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me just read that. Chapter 3, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as you, um, as we do for you. And so he's saying your love, uh, you, you have very real love for your brothers and for all, speaking of unbelievers. And he's saying, may this increase and abound. And here he's saying, this love's already evident. And uh, it's interesting that he's pointing out uh, not just that they're loving believers in their local church, but they're loving believers beyond that. Did you notice that? You're already doing this to all your brothers throughout Macedonia. So these Thessalonian believers can't be throughout Macedonia all the time, right? So in what sense, you know, are these Thessalonian believers loving their brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia? And there's just a sweet, I think, takeaway here is like they're doing it by their example and by their reputation. That's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7. And uh, I think we know what this is like uh, experientially. So have you heard news about a Christian outside of this local congregation? Like you just heard about someone walking with the Lord, heard about their life, the good that they're doing, and you find your heart encouraged by it, strengthened by it, instructed by it. Well, that's what's happened throughout Macedonia and Achaia, according to Paul, is that their reputation has spread by their good works. And so they're loving by their example, their brothers and sisters, even from a distance. And I think that's just a really encouraging thought when it comes to what your life can be like. You could be rightly planted in one place your entire life. And just by being faithful right where you're at, it's going to have this influence and ripple effect that you're going to love people far beyond those in your immediate sphere of influence. That's a powerful thing, but it starts with loving people right there. So we're back to this question. Why does Paul write even though he said they don't need him to? Why does Paul write even though he said they don't need him to? And he does this again, by the way, in chapter 5, verse 1. Look at this. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anyone, uh, anything written to you. Guess what he goes on to do? 
write to them about these things. And so why, why does he do that? I think you could anticipate the answer. It's because there's room for growth in all of us, right? Paul knows that he hasn't arrived and he knows that they haven't arrived. And so this is just Paul's mindset. That's why he says that you do so more and more. There's a certain mentality he's wanting to see embedded into the minds and the hearts of the Thessalonians, that they don't coast or loiter on the way to heaven, but there's a type of holy discontentment where there's a longing to press on, a longing to grow more in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So there's, he writes them, even though in a sense they don't need it because there's room for growth, but in a fallen world, there's also needs for reminders, right? There's a great need for reminders. The fall has had massive effects on our minds and our hearts, and we have a tendency to forget even the most important things. So there's a principle here. There's a principle here that sh- can show up in every single relationship in our lives. And, there's, and the principle really comes down to the need for repetition, the need for repetition and discipleship. The apostles thought this way constantly. And as a quick aside, I think this is crucial to a good philosophy of education, by the way, um, is that there's repetition, that things are going to be ground in because we aren't going to remember it the first time. We need to be reminded over and over again. Look how important this was, for example, to the apostle Peter. I'm just going to read it, but you can, uh, you can turn if you want, but you don't need to. Second Peter 1.13 He says, I think it right, as long as I am in the body, as long as I'm still alive and breathing, to stir you up by way of reminder. Just the way that he thought, the way that he discipled people, the way that he, what he thought Christians need. Or 2 Peter 3, 1, Peter says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up, uh, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So in other words, we need to be reminded of things. And so you are God taught. There's a fundamental way in which you have been taught by God personally. There's instincts embedded in you. Um, But those things need to be reinforced in a fallen world. And God uses means to reinforce them and to keep us going in the right direction. And it's a mark of wisdom to be willing to receive reminders. And to actually invite that, to want that, to never grow out of it. Um, The Proverbs talks this way about humble learners as it being a mark of wisdom. Um, Proverbs 1.5, let the wise hear and increase in learning. Okay, Um, Or Proverbs 9.9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. And so... Um, this is something that needs to come out in our lives, in our teachability. Even the way you hear sermons, oh, I've heard that before. Well, <laughs> let me stir you up, you know, by way of reminder because these things get reinforced and it makes everybody a better teacher of these things when we internalize them more fully. Like someone's been telling me, actually, I've heard this so many times where they'll, someone will say to me, they'll look at me as a young dad and they'll say, Oh, just cherish these times. They're going to go fast. I hear it so often, but when I hear it, I just keep saying, every time you're around, you just keep reminding me of that because I know I'm going to forget it. And I know I'm going to need those reminders. It's just one little example. Like, please keep telling me that because those words will be timely. And sometimes I'll need those reminders even more than I do in this moment. And so uh, this, it, when we are taught by God, you could say, I've used this analogy before, it's like he puts seeds on our hearts, okay? All of this potential, 
but there is very real responsibility in seeing to those seeds growing. So something is there, you're taught by God, but it's also something to be, to be cultivated. So do so more and more. And that leads us to our second point, okay? We are to keep growing in our brotherly love, but we're also to keep growing in personal responsibility. I think you're going to see why I would title this section uh, personal responsibility as you look through these verses. But one thing, let me read them to you. And then I want to put one thing on your radar as we work through this section. Starting in verse 11. Okay, so after he says, do this more and more and to inspire to live and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. So as Paul's shifting into this next section, I want you to go, okay, content-wise, in verses 9 and 10, 11, 12, they're different enough where we can take those as two separate points, but there's a deep connection between the two that we ought not miss. He's in the same stream of thought. Personal responsibility is an expression of love. This is huge. Personal responsibility is an expression of love. Paul hasn't given up the idea of love here. He's just fleshing it out. And think about that. Is it possible to be a truly loving person if you're not taking personal responsibility for the things God has entrusted to you in life? I'd say some of the most unloving things happen when people aren't taking personal responsibility. If you stop and think about it. So Paul is going to say, keep growing in love and this deep expression of it, being responsible for the things that God uh, has entrusted to you. And he's going to get, exp- he's going to get specific. And he extends it um, also here um, as an expression of love that encompasses not just believers, but also unbelievers. Did you notice that in verse 12? So that you may walk properly toward outsiders. I'm going to revisit that. Um, but, but he's saying, I want your love to expand to every area of your life. Living responsibly and purpose- purposely before unbelievers is an act of love. And I want us to take this to heart today. And now he's going to give some instructions that make a lot of sense when you realize that there was kind of a growing issue in Thessalonica, in the church there. And that issue could be boiled down to one word, idleness. Okay? Idleness. People were being idle. People were not, some were not doing their jobs, were not acting responsibly. Um, So it shows up here and he's having to exhort them to do their work. It's going to show up in chapter 5. You can peek over at it in verse 14. He's asking to enlist the other believers, like help your fellow believers. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. And so obviously this is an issue, and it seems like it's going to continue to be an issue because Paul addresses the same thing in the second letter to the Thessalonians with greater depth and detail. Um, But I'm not going to go into that for the sake of time. I'm just going to focus right here on him addressing this issue of idleness. If they're idle, they're not taking personal responsibility. And if they're not taking personal responsibility, they're failing in the cause of love, right? So he's exhorting them to grow in love, grow in personal responsibility. He uses these three phrases to bring out this this piece of personal responsibility here. And to aspire to live quietly, there's one. To mind your own affairs, I bet you could paraphrase that one, put it in your own words. Mind your own business, and to work with your hands as we instruct you. So let's look at each of those briefly, okay? Um, To live 
quietly. Likely, this includes being submissive to authorities because Paul talks like this in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 1 and following. Um, he wants them to li- live quietly for the sake of their witness. Um, and, he wants to, and part of living quietly in that context was being submissive to rulers and authorities uh, in their lives. So that's part of what I think he's talking about here when he says live quietly. But it's important to say uh, what it doesn't mean, Okay. Um, this is not a call to avoid gospel proclamation, right? Live quietly. And then the people that are nervous about sharing the gospel, like, see, Paul says it (laughs) quietly. No gospel proclamation here. No, he's not doing that. So it's like live quietly, but not so quietly that you stop sharing the gospel with people. Okay, so to live quietly, I think it's talking mainly about uh, being, being submissive. And I think it's actually hard to separate the meaning of this phrase from the other ones that follow. They mutually inform each other, uh, so much so that uh, in 2 Thessalonians, he uses the phrase, work quietly, right? That's going to be another one of the phrases, work. So he's combining them because they're all part of this, this same idea. So uh, live quietly. Next one, uh, mind your own affairs or mind your own business, right? So in other words, he's saying stop meddling. So some of them were busy, all right, but they were busy bodies, right? They weren't doing their job, so they had all kinds of time to run around and meddle in things that was not their primary responsibility, okay? So Paul is dealing with this issue here and saying, do what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, Don't be busy bodies. Mind your own business. Have something to attend to. How does that old old saying go? Uh, Satan makes, what, what is it? Or idleness is a Satan's workshop? Is that it? Yeah, so the way I say it to my kids once in a while is when they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing is to be able to say, like, I know someone that would love to give you a job. And just to help give a little sober thought, it's not a small thing to not be doing the things that we're actually meant to be doing. Think about David on the, on the roof of his palace, right? When the time when kings were leading their men out to war, what was he doing? We don't have to go down that rabbit trail right now. But I'm just trying to make the point, idleness, right, gets us in trouble. Paul knows this very well, so he's giving some wise instruction. He doesn't want Satan to give them a job, right? He wants them to see that God's already given them a job and to start doing it, even their, their own honest work. And that, goes, that leads us to that third phrase, right, where Paul says, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. This is Paul's way of saying, do honest productive work. Paul is affirming the goodness of work here. A lot of us just think because we are we do our work in the midst of thorns and thistles all the time because this is work in a fallen world, we often think that work is a product of the fall. But work is a pre-fall reality. It's a good thing. It's something we'll actually do productively in heaven, but we're going to love it every minute of it. But now it can be can be difficult, but it's important that we do productive work. Um, and uh, Paul was an example of this along with the other missionaries. These guys worked their tail off um, so that they could keep preaching the gospel and not be a burden to these uh, young believers. And, um, and so Paul set that example of hard work, and now he's saying embrace that, follow that example. So another way of putting this is that able-bodied people should be self-supporting and not mooching off of other people. Isn't this important principle that if our society embraced it, we would be in a lot better shape? Okay? 
Able-bodied people should be self-supporting, not mooching off of others. And again, in 2 Thessalonians, he draws this out a lot more, and that's where that famous phrase comes in. If someone's not willing to work, let him not eat, right? So able-bodied person should be self-supporting and not mooching off of others. So another way to put it is we should not be sinfully dependent on other people, okay? Or in unnecessary need because of our sloth or our neglect. This is what he's saying here. A A capable person should be working and should be positioning himself to not just provide for their needs and the needs of their family, uh, but also for others that are in need. So it doesn't cancel that out, but it just says those who should not be in need and they're all of a sudden in need because they're, they're neglecting their God-given work, that's a problem. That's what he's admonishing here. So let me ask you this. How would, so in the community in which we live, okay, mo- many of us here live in peers, okay, this farming community, but you kind of get the flavor that kind of ripples out even beyond peers in Morrison County. Um, how do people, generally speaking, view people that aren't willing to work, though they could? Think about that. How do they view that? This matters a ton in Paul's mind right here. And Paul's saying this because it matters a ton to God. How do, how do people view it? Well, they, they don't view it favorably. That's one of the fastest ways in this area to have a bad reputation. And if you're a Christian and you're wearing the jersey that says Jesus on the back of it, and you're idle, it's one of the best ways not just to get a bad reputation, but to give Jesus a bad reputation, right? And so that matters a ton here, and that's what Paul is getting at. But by doing the things that Paul's saying, by taking responsibility, you know, you're going to have good reputations. You're going to be faithful stewards of the resources. You know, think about that. Instead of giving resources, even from the church, to people that should be working and taking personal responsibility, instead of giving those and draining those resources that way, the church can more faithfully steward those resources to give them to people in the congregation that have legitimate needs and people even in the community that have needs that the church can bless them with. And so there's so many good reasons to do the things that Paul is saying here. But in a sense, he's saying, be exemplary in every area of your life. Or another way to put it is don't just be a Sunday Christian, right? Like realize that this is meant to impact every area of our lives. And the work that we do takes up a huge amount of our life, doesn't it? And so Paul is just infusing this with tons of purpose here. And he's challenging us to live purposefully. So why, why does he do this? Again, it's not an end in of itself, right? Live quietly, mind your own business, work, do some productive work. So that, verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So to walk properly toward outsiders. God wants Christians to leverage their life, all of their lives, including their work life, in such a way that it's going to serve and bless and open the ears and hearts of unbelievers that they work with every single day. God wants to leverage your everyday life for the good of others. This is a way to express love, not just to other believers, though that's true, but to also those who are outside the full, to not just be Sunday Christians. We should think, we should live responsibly 
and really think purposefully, even about our work and the grind, the, the weekly grind of um, life in our workplaces, because we want to leverage it for the sake of unbelievers in our lives. Because, um, well, let me just flesh this out a bit. So Paul gives a window into this idea of walking properly. He doesn't unpack it much here. He just says that you may walk properly toward outsiders. And he's saying being responsible is a big part of how you do that. People notice, right? People notice it. And uh, so Paul says there's kind of an, I'm going to give you a negative and a positive example of walking properly or not walking properly, okay? Here's an example of not walking properly. Paul says in Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And you could say, and the list will go on. In other words, all these different ways that we can uh, walk in sin, those are all ways of walking improperly toward outsiders, okay? Um, but then positively, Colossians 4, love this text. Colossians 4 verses 5 and 6 Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So even boiling down how we live properly, it's like, okay, do your basic responsibilities, but then as you do them, let your speech in your interactions with people be distinct, be salty. Um, this is an awesome thing for someone to pray every day before they go to their workplace. Lord, help me to let my speech be gracious, seasoned with salt so that I would know how to answer each person, how to interact with them. You know, it's one thing to be good at your job. It's another thing to make a fair amount of money. But it's another thing altogether to leverage that in such a way that others will see the distinctiveness of your life. People don't get to see everything, Right? Like if they, they know you at work, right? But the way that you speak gives them a window into your God-taught heart and will give them a sense of what they need so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And they might glorify God on the day of visitation and they might thank you on the last day uh, because of the way that you live distinctly at work. I think the main thing precedent on you right now is God, or people see. People actually notice. One of the brothers a few weeks back was telling me how he was having coffee, uh, coffee with some of the, the old timers and peers. And he was just, he just texted me to tell me. He's just like, they are watching. They are paying a ton of attention to Fellowship Bible Church and the people that go there. And he just wanted me to know that. And he was actually encouraged by the things that they were noticing. So praise the Lord. I literally talked to someone. I have to be careful giving too many details because we're a small community. But but I was uh, I was meeting with someone uh, from the community, and it was the same kind of thing. And this was just a couple weeks ago, where they're just like, like one of the things this person said was like, "Boy, your people over there, they sure are loyal." <laughs> and what he meant by that is like loyalness. It's like they actually go to church, and they want to be there. I won't tell you the contrast that he was drawing, uh, you know, but this is uh, actually, it was very encouraging to me because that guy was a devout Catholic that was noticing the difference. And one thing I would want to say, and one thing I was saying in that extended conversation we had, was uh, 
They're taught by God. These are Holy Spirit empowered instincts. They know him. And this is the difference that it makes over time. And especially as things are not just taught internally by God, but reinforced in the ways that God wants them reinforced over a lifetime. And it starts to change people because God does that. And uh, it was a beautiful to be able to testify it. But I can tell you this, I wouldn't have been having that level of conversation if it wasn't for the witness of the church as a whole. So praise the Lord for that. And I just want to leave that with you. They see you. They see you. And even your coworkers, like think that way. They're watching you more than you realize. And so leverage your life. Be distinct in your speech. Avoid things that are going to dishonor the Lord. And um, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that we are to be in the world, but not of the world, right? We're neither to be conformed to the world nor checked out from it, right? We want to be distinct from the world, but we also want to be deliberate in our witness to the world. And that's why I keep saying we want to live responsibly, but purposefully, where we're actually engaging our minds to say, how can I leverage my time at work for the sake of the God? To open their eyes a little wider, right? Help them see something a little more clear. Make them wonder about something. To put a pebble in their shoe that they have to walk on and think about and notice in their lives. Um, Something that would jar their thinking and make them want to ask for a reason for the hope that is in you. Press into this, beloved, because God, this pleases God to see his people living, living responsibly and purposefully as an act of love. And what a beautiful thing it would be, right? Doing your normal job faithfully to the glory of Jesus, purposefully to the glory of Jesus, and then he comes back. While you're doing your normal job, and I would just say, that'd be a beautiful place to be. In fact, I would say, most Christians are probably going to be at their workplace when Jesus comes back because it's such a big chunk of their lives. It's a good possibility that that's what's going to happen. I just want to say, here's some pretty good instruction on how to get the heart and the mind ready in terms of taking personal responsibility and purposefully living so that others might see and that he might be glorified, especially on the day of his appearing and as it draws near. And so, oh, God cares about our normal work. It gives so much dignity to our everyday lives. And it gives us an ambition for our daily lives to win the respect of unbelievers around us. Has your life won the respect of your coworkers? Make that your ambition. Make that your ambition. And that's what Paul is saying here, isn't he? When he says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work so that others might, you might live properly toward outsiders. He says, aspire to this, like be zealous about it, lean into this, live purposefully. This is what he is saying. And I want to say to those of you here that are hearing these things and you're actually even the description about being God taught and you're actually going, you know what? I'm not sure that I'm actually God taught. Or as other passages in the New Testament say, that you're born again, that you're born of the spirit. Um, I want you to hear the sweetness of this passage for you. Because if you think about it, why, is it, why are these instructions being given? Like, why is God seeing to it that his apostle instructs people that already know these things at a heart level, but he wants them to do it more and more? Simple answer to that question is it's for you. It's for you. 
God cares about the outsiders. I hate that that's even still a category, but it is right here in the scriptures, that there's some that are inside because they've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, but there are still some that are on the outside. And God is setting things up by inspiring his people so that those who are on the outside might come to be on the inside. That God, this text shows how much God wants you to know him. Because he's having all of his people live purposely so that you can see him. So that you can know him. So that you can be awakened to your need for his son, Jesus Christ, and the provision that his son has made by dying on the cross and rising from the dead and you're being told here in this passage that you can be a partaker of the new covenant. You can be part of the greatest covenant that has ever been made with man, the new covenant. And the way you become a partaker is by repenting of your sins and putting your trust in Jesus Christ. And the promises of the new covenant will come true for you. You will be forgiven your sins You will know God personally at a level that it's a sense you don't need to be taught, but you'll need reinforcements, right? That you will have new instincts and inclinations to follow God. But I will tell you this, God does that in your heart, even if it was in this moment, and I pray that it will be, that you, not everything will change overnight, but you will enroll in continuing education with the rest of us and learn how to love, to make Daily determinations to do good to others because God says so. But now all of a sudden, it's your delight to do it because you know God. And I close with this, church. Um, I hope you just feel this affirmation from the Lord when it says, like, you're taught by God. This is beautiful. Like, you are taught by God. Take time to praise him today that you are God taught, but also be inspired by how God uses normal everyday Christians and their normal everyday lives to fulfill his mission. It's so clear in this text. And remember this, that a loving life is a life made up of many days lived responsibly and purposefully. That's what a loving life is. A life, whether short or long, it's made up of days where the Christian is seeking to live responsibly and purposefully. That is the stuff of love. A loving life is not just, though, a life marked by a determined effort to do good to others. It's also marked by a mindset, a mentality, a long view of slow and steady impact. And the picture I get is from my trees out in my front yard. These apple trees that are growing, we have a new one just planted this year, this spring, and then there's some that have been planted for like seven years. And I'm, a, I'm overwhelmed by the girth of these trees sometimes. I was just looking at them yesterday going, wow. It's amazing. They're starting to produce produce so much fruit. And I think God gives us a vision, a purposeful vision for our lives. We want to leave an impact. We want to make a difference. And I'm just here to say, it's not just the missionary that goes and makes a difference. It's not just the pastor that goes and makes a difference. It's every single Christian planted, right, by God. And over time, the roots are, are sinking down and they're spreading out. We're, we're beginning to grow strong over time and we start to broaden and we start to spread out. We start to bear more and more fruit. And I want to say, if the Lord plants you in one spot, I just want you to say, I want you to think of your life that way. How can I take responsibility today? How can I be faithful to the Lord today in the nitty gritty of my everyday life, not just on Sundays? And how, what kind of a difference could I make? How can I encourage saints that I don't even know 
by the way that I live my life right here faithfully. And I'm telling you, that's what God, God uses, that slow and steady faithfulness. So some of you are in the grind of your days, you know, in your work schedules. I'm just going to say, the Lord just wants to infuse this with so much purpose for you. And uh, I want to pray for that right now. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for the chance to preach your word again this morning. And I thank you, Lord, for your heart, for your people, and for those who are not yet your people. Lord, we see your heart big in this passage. We thank you, Lord, that you have taught us to love one another. Lord, I thank you that though we once didn't have these instincts to follow you, to love you, to do your will, but now by your grace, through the working of your Holy Spirit on our hearts, you have forgiven and cleansed us. And you've given us new instincts and desires to want to please you by loving one another. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to grow in this more and more. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us to see how taking personal responsibility is a big part of how we love people in our lives. Lord, I especially pray for dads. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as fathers to take personal responsibility, especially if we have children still in the home, to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to lead family worship, to not just have our hobbies controlling our lives, but to want to take responsibility so that our children would rise up and call us blessed at the end of our lives. Not just because we taught them to fish, but because we loved them with the love that Christ shows us to in the scriptures because we taught them diligently. Lord, I even pray for those that um, are retired right now. Lord, I pray that you would convict and inspire their hearts to even though they're, they're not engaged in gainful employment right now, I pray that they would find things to do that would be productive, that they would make the best use of their time that their unbelieving neighbors would see them being productive, serving, being intentional, and that it would leverage their life to help them see the Lord Jesus more clearly and believe the gospel that we want all people to know. And Lord, I pray that you would help those of us who are idle or have been in some measure this week. Help us, Lord, to recognize the goodness of work, that it's a gift to work. And even when work is tough, Lord, I pray that you would help us to look forward and hope to a day when there'd be no more thorns and no more thistles and that you lift the burdens of work and all this, and, and then the work becomes a true and full and thorough joy for us in glory. And God, I pray um, that you would help us to realize that we are enrolled in a lifelong process of learning to love one another. But I pray that our mentality in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces, in our church would be to do this more and more. I especially pray for marriages right now, Lord, that you, would, that you would help. If there's a couple in here, Lord, that's like the one I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, saying we just don't love each other anymore. Oh God, would you teach them to love? Help them to be willing to learn to love again. And Lord, even if other relationships have been so hindered because we haven't been walking properly, Lord, I pray that you teach us to love and help us to see the possibilities of this as we submit our hearts to you. Give us teachable hearts, Lord, that it be said of us. Give instruction to a wise man 
and he will, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. May it be so of your people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.